Okay, Psalm 51, 3 through 5. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Thanks, Deidre. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 51. Um, that's the psalm that we find ourselves in as we continue this pilgrimage uh, into Lent. Um, and again, for, for those new to our faith family or new to Lent, like most of us are, Lent is this journey, right? It's following Jesus to cross and tomb um, so that we might actually follow Jesus out of the tomb into life, right? Like it's this season where we get to enter into step and rhythm with Jesus on his way to, to death, to the death of death so that we might get to live as ones who live his life, now full and forever with him. And so what we've discovered over the last few weeks is that the character of Lent is really, um, is really seen distinguished in its connection to two kind of familiar practices, right? The, the practice of repentance, the psalms that we've been reading, the penitential psalms, this, these psalms that we turn from sin and cling to God, this act of repenting, is a normal part of these 40 days that lead up to Easter, right? Where we spend a lot of time letting go of what is old, the old self and sin, and clinging to what is new, life in Jesus, right? But it's also given this character of baptism, this idea that we are immersed in life with God. And that life with God is this life of God's active work in forgiving and bringing life into us. That like we are trained by these 40 days to be ones who live a life baptized in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, immersed in the life of God with others. And that the, the Psalms that we walk through in Lent are meant to kind of help us move into that, right? And so like, like we read last week, um, our baptism is this in Romans 6. It says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? The death that we're dying right now in Lent is the death of Jesus. It's Jesus' death, because it's not real death for us, right? Like, it's not really the end of our breathing, but it is the end of our old selves, right? It's the end of our sin. We're dying our death with Jesus. This is our time, which, again, it doesn't happen just in Lent, but Lent is a time when we choose to enter into this dying with Jesus, into death with Jesus, and we were buried with him. Last week, we began to move into the buried part of the tomb, and, but buried with him, we are baptized into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that our entry into the tomb isn't a forever entry, right? We know that where we're going, we don't stay for too long. Praise the Lord, right? And so like part of the beauty of Lent and the beauty of this season, this kind of encapsulated time that has a beginning and has an end, is that we can kind of put up with the pressure, in the middle, right? Because we know it's not forever. Like this season, we can feel the weight of our brokenness appropriately. Not in a way that crushes us completely, but in a way that lets us free our hands from the things of death and, and things that don't lead to life so that we can cling to life itself. Because we know that's where we're going. We know that's where our end is. And so we don't rush out of the grave, right? And so, again, this, the, the psalms that we're kind of walking through week in and week out, on Mondays, uh, uh, the psalms is expounded on by somebody in our faith family who's been praying over it, thinking about it for us. 
We're invited during the week to enter into it through different practices of Lectio. And then on Sunday, we come into this space to one more time enter into these penitential psalms for that purpose, that we can let ourselves slowly sit in the pressure and the weight of our own sin and the glory of the Father that raises us to life. And so last week, we entered into the Lent struggle. We made our move into um, the struggle that we all have of giving up life and entering the grave. We don't like to take up a cross, right? We don't want to die, even to our old selves. Even if we know that there's something more on the other side, we don't like to die. We do everything in our human existence to stay alive, right? We spend all of our money to live, right? We use, we go about life for life's sake. So it seems odd and backwards for us to choose death. And the psalmist knows that. The Lord knows that. And so the Psalm 30, 38 was given to help walk into that struggle, to guide us through the difficult terrain of this very paradoxical and antithetical way of choosing death when everything around us and in us wants to choose life. But rather than just coming into the death and then quickly moving out, the penitential psalms, the way these psalms have been organized over, our, over church history, is that that we're meant to kind of linger long enough in the grave so that we might share with all the saints in all of history that one common prayer. My soul is greatly troubled, oh Lord, how long? Because listen, when we start to die, we want to know how quickly is this going to be over? How quickly do we get out of this? How far away is, is Easter? I mean, that's like, you know, like 17 more days. Okay, 17 more days of this so we can get out, right? Like, how many more days until I can, I can like, if, if you're abstaining for certain things, how many more days so I can get my caffeine back or my chocolate back or my TV back or whatever it is, you know? Like, we, like we know that our tendency is to, 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 to want to get back that thing that we're losing. But the Psalms won't let us get out quickly. But Psalm 51 is given to us in the midst of this kind of darkest place to help answer how long are we meant to stay here. And the answer really is, long enough to see light. We stay in the dark long enough to see light. We stay in the dark long enough for an epiphany. So, Psalm 51. Again, open. if you have your Bibles, we'll use them a lot today. We don't have the words up on the screen, so, so you can open them up. Um, I think there's some Bibles in the seats. You can pull them up on your phone. But Psalm 51 begins with these words. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. So think about where we ended last week. In, in this kind of movement into death, we were invited to choose death, and finally the psalmist chose it. The psalmist decided, I'm ready to fall. I'm ready to fall into the grave. And in Psalm 51, we begin not in the grave. Well, we begin in the grave, but we begin in the grave appropriately. We begin in the grave at a place of mercy and forgiveness. Right? This is the air we've been breathing since Psalm 6. Remember the very first psalm that we, that we, that we uh, prayed together? It set the atmosphere of, of, of the Lenten season, actually Psalm 30, where we breathe in the forgiveness of God. Like this is the movement that we're in. And so the psalmist starts out this way, and it's important for us to start out this way. That before we read the next few words, we have to breathe in the reality of the fact that God is the one who forgives us, that our God is the one who does not hold our transgressions against us. The same things we've been breathing all along. Because listen, if we don't, if we don't breathe in that air, 
Like we suffocate. Like and then and then and then we just move into this death that really is death, the death of soul and the death of life. But that's not what God desires. Second, so we've got to breathe this in. So real quickly, for just a moment, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and breathe in Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, breathe in the mercy of God. Breathe in the steadfast love that surrounds us as we've learned. And now as we breathe that in, we can pray and open up our eyes and go into the rest of Psalm 51, verse 1. It says, now in the midst of that, mercy and grace, Lord, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The first part of the verse is covenantal language. It's this language of relationship. It's this language that pleads to God for life because there is relationship. The second half is this cultic language, this religious language, this Lord. Because we're in a relationship, make me worthy of the relationship. Make my life one that is allowed to enter into this kind of presence of the holy. Cleanse me. Blot out my sin. Wash thoroughly. Remove these things that keep this relationship from being a relationship of life. And so Psalm 51 helps us stay in the grave, first off, by encouraging us to let go, encouraging us to ask the Lord to do what the Lord does in religious and cultic language, to blot out, to wash thoroughly, to cleanse. That in the grave, this is what's happening, right? That the Lord is doing something to remove the things that keep us from life in relationship with him. And so there's this part of like letting go of those things that keep us from relationship with God, right? And there's another part too, though, Again, the verse first, be gracious, steadfast in love, abundant in mercy. Not only are we meant to let go of the things that keep us from relationship, but hold on to the relationship that God says he has with us. Not that we say we have. Again, go back to verse one. What do we just pray? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Not my righteousness, not my cleanliness, not that I get it right or got it figured out, but because you are one who love faithfully. Because you have an abundance of mercy, as we were saying just a moment ago. Our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. We cling to this reality that God desires relationship with us. That he's given us a relationship to have with him. So we let go of the things that fracture that relationship. That keep that relationship from being whole and full and complete life-giving. But we cling to not our relationship with the Lord, but his relationship with us. And so for just a minute, before we go any further, let's sit, and I want you to think about this. What in my old self and sin do I need to forfeit? Do I need to let go? And what do I need to cling to in the character and power of God? What in my old self do I need to forfeit? 
Do I need to let go of? And in almost a desperate trust, what do, of the Lord do I need to cling to? For just a minute, we're going to be quiet. I'm going to let us sit in this, and then we'll come back into the rest of Psalm 51. whether in this moment or hopefully sometime over these last couple weeks um, as we've been talking about this, it, Psalm 51.3 has become true. Um, Psalm 51.3 says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I don't know about you, but over this season, right, like there's this reality that we keep coming back to this thing of our own sin. It's in front of us. Things that I need to let go and forfeit of the old self, Right? in order to, to cling to life. It's, it's just there. It won't, it won't just go away. And, it's, and that's, the, that's the beginning of death. That's where, like the psalmist last week, that's our entry into the tomb is when our, our, my sin is ever before me, I'm ready to fall, my pain is ever in front of me, the psalmist said in Psalm 38. I confess my iniquity, I'm sorry for my sin. At some point we have to get there. That is the point where we enter into the tomb. That is the point where, where it becomes real for us. But it's not the furthest that we go. Right? Our sin being in front of us isn't just where we, where we stop. Sometimes I think, in, and I don't know about you, but in, in Christian life and in, in religious life, um, this is kind of as far as we go. Our sin's just in front of us. We know where we've messed up. We know where we've, we've gone wrong. We know where we're off. 
And so our desire is to do everything we can to make right of that, right? And so like we go uh, and try everything we know to do, everything we've been taught to do, everything that we've learned, everything that we can think of to make things right, right? To, um, to make amends for the things that we've done wrong, either with other people or with God himself or even within our own selves. We, we try to live differently or like we try to, to kind of correct these things because the sin's in front of us and we don't like that, which is a good thing. And so we don't want it to stay there, so we just try to move past it, get over it. And whether that means we come to church more, we read the Bible more, we give more, we, um, uh, we go on um, sabbaticals, or we go and do some sort of program, or whatever it is. Like, we want to do the things that we need to do in order to get, get over this. But, but for the psalmist, he knows that that's only the front end of the tomb. Like, we're barely into the tomb at that point. That we still have a couple more steps to take into its full darkness. And so, verse 4 says this. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Something that's happened in between verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 is almost a self-absorption with sin. My sin is ever before me, right? I know my transgressions. I've, I've, I've acknowledged them. I've confessed them. It's in front of me. But all of a sudden, it's not so much himself that the psalmist is, is um, um, consumed with, preoccupied with. All of a sudden, he realizes, oh, I'm in the presence of God. God, right now, is the one that I've sinned in front of. And not just sinned in front of, like God saw it. I actually have fractured and broken that very thing that I plead for, relationship, life. And, and if, if you know much about this psalm, this psalm is tied to a very particular um, um, moment in David's life. Um, King David, a man after God's own heart, um, who um, sent his troops to battle, and while they were away, took um, the wife of one of his um, commanders um, and, um, and, and got her pregnant and then had the commander killed and then hit it. Um, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty intense real things, right? Um, pretty evident that his David's sin was not just against God, right? There was a man who died, Uriah, a woman whose life was completely turned upside down and, and ruined, a child who would be born that wouldn't live, like their son that, that, was, that came out of this died, right? A whole fracturing of relationships that happened after this within David's own familial structure. Like, it's clear that this sin was not just against other people, right? Or not just against God, it was against other people. He did things to other people. And isn't all of our sin that, to some extent, Right? I mean, most of the things we do is we fracture relationships. We break relationships. But what the psalmist realizes is that even in this hurting of relationships, of, of, of stepping over relational boundaries, right? Doing things that are out of step to break wholeness in life is really just, at its core, a breaking of what God desires, of our relationship with God. That our sin against, my sin against Deidre or Cohen and Lily is a sin against the Lord. When I do things that, that, that tear our relationship apart and don't build it up into health, even if it's unintentional, 
I'm sinning against what God desires, a wholeness of our relationships and a wholeness of relationship with him. And that's a really weighty thing, right? Like it's weighty to know that you've, you've hurt other people, right? We feel that in our relationships. Like we, we know like when we mess up with somebody and we really wanna restore that relationship, like we feel bad in our stomachs like our days don't go great, we feel tired or we feel anxious or we feel whatever until some sort of conversation can be had, reconciliation can be had, right? But the psalmist moves beyond that kind of introductionary weight of sin into this weight of, oh my gosh, what I feel there is now felt with God. And God's the very core of my being. I have no being without God. Like I, I hurt these things that impact my life, but now I hurt the thing that is life itself. And, and notice what he says. When he feels the weight of it, now he's like, oh my, Lord, you're completely justified. Everything you do, everything you do to me, every, every weight I feel of my sin, every condemnation that could be given, I, I can't argue. Which is different, remember this Psalm 38. When we started off Psalm 38, our movement, our first struggle with dying to self is that we feel like we're fighting God. We're fighting against God. Our God's fighting against us. The psalmist has moved past that. He's accepted this weighted reality that what he has done, what he has done has not just injured horizontal relationships, but has broken life itself. And that same weight and gut that he, in the sense of like pain that he feels in his gut that you would feel like when you hurt somebody that you care about, he feels that in relationship to God. But it's so much more because how do, you, how do you make right that relationship? Right? Like when, when, I, when I sin against Deidre, when I do something to, to fracture our relationship, like I can go talk to her. I can tell her I'm sorry. We can work on some things. How does that work with God, Right? Like, how do we do that? How do I show God that I'm different, that I've changed, that I, all those kind of things, right? He's starting to feel this weight. And he leads us into the really the darkest moment. Verse five, behold, that term's an, like an epiphany term, right? He's like, he feels this weight of separation, this weight of, of, of the very fabric of his existence being torn apart. And not wanting it to be that way, but not knowing how he can get out of it. Because there's nothing he can argue anymore. He, everything the Lord it can, it can give against him is justifiable. And so he says, behold, like, oh my goodness, like, I see it now. And what does he see? In verse 5 he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I have no life. I never had life. Listen, I, I personally don't think this is an ontological like statement. Like that he's, I don't think that the psalmist is trying to talk about total depravity and, our, um, and all that kind of stuff. I think the psalmist is expressing what is true. That at his core, at his very being, he has no ability and never has, any, has ever had any ability to bring life. That he needs life from God. Because everything that he tries to do on his own leads to no life. Listen, like, it's not that, if it, that somehow his mom was wrong in giving birth to him or, uh, or anything like that. This is poetic language. It's meant to 
to be somewhat hyperbolic. Again, I think it says something true. It says something true at our core, in our character. We cannot have life on our own. And there's never been a moment in our life that we could. But this is his deep expression, the darkest moment of death. And the darkest moment of death. Again, this is not a real death, right? He's still breathing. But his darkest moments of spiritual death, of emotional death, of the death of the old self, and the death of sin, is that we experience this almost like, oh my gosh, I cannot live. And I've never been able to live without you, God. Well, know we say that sometimes, right, in worship. But this is felt, like at the gut level, because of his own sin, his own brokenness, right? But here's, and this is, this is one of the reasons this is probably one of the most, most popular uh, psalms in our psalm, in our scriptures. It's because this kind of first behold quickly moves into a second. But before we move into a second, before we get there, we have to sit in this place where we have to, to be in a place where we, are, where we admit that we're utterly unable to sustain life. We're utterly unable to sustain whole relationships with God, with others, with ourselves. We've never been alive apart from God. Jesus talks about being born again. Why do you think we need to be born again? Because we're living dead. And this is where we get to. This is the darkest moment of the grave where we recognize that we have no life in ourselves. That we have no life in ourselves. We never have. Nothing in our history, nothing in our ability. We have no life in ourselves. So just for a minute, just for, and it'll just be for a minute, let's sit in this utterly unable to sustain life reality. For just a moment, close your eyes, be quiet. Let your, let your heart and mind, even if you're not there yet, right in this moment, let your heart and mind just kind of rest on the psalmist. Imagine what it'd be like to be at this place of, of admitting, utterly unable to sustain life. And just let yourself feel it for just a moment. in that place, still with your eyes closed, still in trying to imagine yourself with the psalmist, feeling this, this weight of utter inability. Utter inability. Hear these words in verse six. Behold, God, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Did you expect to hear that at the bottom? right? In the utter inability, what do you expect to hear? Do you hear condemnation? Do you hear 
accusation? Do you hear emptiness? The psalmist doesn't, or at least not for long. The psalmist hears, behold, you delight in the truth of my inward being. Behold, God desires life. He takes no joy in your dying, but only in showing you how to live. How amazing is that? You can come, you can open your eyes if you want. You don't have to, but you can. How amazing is verse six? This is the epiphany of death. That at the moment of death, we begin to see that God doesn't want your death. He wants you to live. He desires you to live, to truly live, to actually live, to not be the living dead, but to be the ones who live full and forever, right? And that not only does he desire you to live, he delights in showing you how to live. In our death, we get to see the light. And maybe for the first time, that's, we get to actually move towards it. Not, not trying to gain life, but living every day. Just think about this. If we woke up every single day, and the first thing we did when we breathed in was, Lord, you desire to me, for me to live true and well, and you desire to show me how to do it. Not you're searching and trying to figure out all the ways that I'm broken and messed up. Not that you're trying to lead me into death all the time, that you want me to just try to struggle and to die, but that you actually want me to live. And sometimes the way to live is to go into death, right? But that God isn't after your death. He's after your life. I mean, just think about what would be different about the way we engaged work and family and friends, neighbors. If we thought every day that God was after us to live, not just to die. That's what the psalmist gets to. He has this epiphany, this, this, this reality that God desires life. He delights not in our dying, but in showing us how to live. And so for just a minute, before we begin to pray, like the psalmist prays in the rest of the verse, because the rest of the verse is this kind of movement out of the grave, this way of beginning to move out of the grave, out of the tomb. It's gonna be slow, it's not gonna be quick. We still got a, we still got a couple more weeks before Easter, um, but we're getting there. But before we do it, just sit in this. And the same emotion that you had with the same kind of feeling of, of angst and weight of verse five, sit in verse six. And pay attention to what you feel. In the reality that God desires life. He delights not in dying, but in showing you how to live. You may have to confess that you don't believe that. You may have to wonder what that really looks like. Or you might just delight in it. You might just praise him for it. I think for David, whether this prayer was prayed and psalm was written right in the moment of, of, his, um, of the light coming upon his sin and Nathan calling him out, or if this was something that, that developed as he processed all that went through that season, that he probably was pretty mixed at this, this turn. They had mixed emotions. Because sometimes it's hard to believe that the Lord wants life and not death. Right? 
Because as ones who know our own sin and brokenness, like, like we, we don't feel like life's possible or that God would do something, that we're good enough for life. So we want to do everything we can. Again, we want to set ourselves up to make sure that we're, we're prepared for life, that we're able to, um, to be in the presence of God. We want to be clean. We want to have things blotted out. We want to do the ritual ways of making sure that we get in on life. Rather than believing that God, that's what God's after. He's not after our death. He's after our life. And I think this because this is what, 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 Psalm, what the psalmist prays, what David prays after in verse 7. Verse 7, again, makes this turn towards the movement out of the grave. Out of this kind of recognition that God delights in truth. That God delights in truth in the inward being, you being who you truly are. And listen, how, how incredible is that? That Psalm, Psalm 51.5 says, listen, I was born in iniquity. Uh, from my mother's womb, I was conceived. I'm utterly incapable for life, which is true. But he doesn't get to stay in this like, view of himself as like, completely worthless, right? The Lord delights in who I truly am. I'm, I'm not truly not truly one who's meant to live without life, who's bound by sin, who's known only by my iniquities and transgressions. And you actually, you actually say that I'm not bound by that because you delight in me being who I'm meant to be, who I've been created to be in you, and you delight in showing me how to live that life. There is this truth and weight of our depravity, right, our brokenness that we have to accept but, the, but we're not meant to live in it, right? We're meant to recognize, to forfeit completely our ability to, to be holy and righteous and, and whole apart from God, have life without God, but then to grab hold of God's life and follow him. He teaches us, he trains us, he shows us how to live. If our depravity, if our brokenness, if our sin keeps us here, then we're missing something. We're missing something, right? Listen, our scriptures in the Psalms won't let us get away without talking about sin. We can't not talk about sin, right? They assume the reality that we're all sinners. In fact, the, the words that we've used, every Psalm uses the words sin, transgression, iniquity. Every Hebrew term for the idea of being off the mark, out of life, out of step with God, not holy, Everything's encompassed. There's no getting around it. There's an assumption that we live in it. But there's also this reality that the, the way God brings us out of it is not us doing, but us clinging to what he does because of what he does. And listen to what he says in verse seven. Verse seven begins the movement out. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The, the beauty of this language is that it's not, these aren't requests. These are, these are future proclamations. He's saying, listen, Lord, when you purge me, when you purge me, I will be clean. The Lord, you'll do this and I will be clean. Lord, you will do this. Because why? Because you delight in life and showing me how to live. And not only will I be clean, I will be washed, I'll be whiter than snow. I will be literally one who has no, um, 
No blemish, which is, which is more than what I am right now, right? Like it's something different than what he is. He knows his own blemish, his transgressions, that he's not capable of living perfectly, right? And yet when the Lord cleanses, when God does what God does, there's a wholly different life that he gets to live because of God's action. God acts. It's his ritual cleansing. It's in the context of, of death, right? So, so the, the, the purging, the washing, like this all comes in like a, um, a Hebrew kind of, you know, a little more ancient style of, of like sacrificial system of worship. And these sacrifices that go with this kind of purging, um, cleanliness and all this kind of stuff have to do with um, making somebody um, who's come in contact with death pure so they can enter into the presence of life, the holy of holies, right? The holy place of God. So literally the, the psalmist is praying, Lord, I've been in contact with death. I'm in the grave. And I know you will make it so that I don't live in the grave anymore. That I can come into your presence out of the grave and be fully prepared, equipped, made right, made pure, made whole. Nothing the psalmist does. The psalmist isn't going to go and do these rituals because they were all lined out. They were all set up. The law was there. The psalmist isn't, now I go and purge these myself. I do the, follow these rules, follow these laws. He says, no, Lord, you do them. And I will be one who is able to enter into your presence. It's a completely different identity, right? Like he's not worried about himself making himself able to be in the presence of God because he's recognized that God wants him in his presence. And God, only God, can do what God needs to do for him to be in his presence. Only God can do it. And so he pleads it. Pleads it as like a hope, right? An expectation that this is what God will do. And then he says in verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, in the ESV say rejoice, but, but let, your, let the bones you have broken dance. This is actually a connection to verse six. Um, Proverbs uh, 3, eight says, wisdom will be healing to your flesh and refreshment or medicine to your bones. The psalmist says, like, like I said in verse six, that you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Like when you teach me wisdom, when you show me how to live, everything that's broken is healed. The relationships that I have with others and with you, I get to experience the fullness of joy, full life, joy, dancing. It's more than just more than just coming out of it, having my sins covered, my sins forgiven. And so now I'm in a, in a good state. Now I get to experience the fullness of life, life to its fullest because of the wisdom that you show me, because of the way that you show me how to live. Again, it's a future sense. It's not a, Lord, please do this. It's a, Lord, when you do this, when you do this, Lord, I know that I'll experience the fullness of life. As you do this, Lord, I know I'll experience the fullness of life. And again, in verse nine, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my transgressions. It's a confident statement that the Lord will do this. It echoes verse one, right? That, that it, it completes this stay in the grave. That the Lord, instead of hiding his face from me because of my sin, hides my sin away. The Lord, instead of looking at me and seeing all the ways in which I defile my relationship with him through my relationships with others, 
having a long memory, because I have a long memory of my own junk, it's all gone. It's not there. And it's not because I did anything, but it's because he's purged and cleaned and washed. Because he has shown wisely how to walk and given joy and made broken bones dance. And so now the psalmist begins to pray the prayer of resurrection, of of recreation. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast, a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Make me new. A new beginning. No no Genesis 3 repeat, says the psalmist. No more choosing to determine what what um, uh, what is good and evil on my own. No more choosing to not trust you in your goodness. No more being removed from this place of which you walked with me day in and day out and nothing was hidden and there was no shame. Restore to me. Bring back to me this old memory of my creation, of what it looked like to be in your presence without anything inhibiting. That's what the psalmist is after. That's what resurrection life is. This Genesis 1 and 2 kind of vision in the midst of a world that's still broken. So, just for a moment, before we move into just kind of the final final declarations of, of the psalm, of this movement out of the grave. Why don't you just take a minute to respond to God? Maybe you want to declare and proclaim something that God will do for you, can do for you, desires to do for you. Maybe you want to pray Psalms seven, or Psalm 51, 7, 8, and 9. Um, again, not as a plea, like of with this kind of like a weak-hearted plea of please, Lord, do this like he won't do it. But like one who's at the, in the moment of the grave begins to see the light is like, Lord, you will do this. Lord, do this. Lord, you will do this, do this. Or maybe you need to pray verses 10 through 12. Lord, make me something new, a new beginning. So just for a couple minutes, decide how you wanna respond to God. And then we'll finish out the psalm together.
at the kind of moment of epiphany in the grave, the psalmist turns and we see this kind of almost like this slow movement back out of the dark end of the tomb towards the, the light at the front end, the light that begins with our, um, our trust and expectation of God to do what God does. As a lover of life, as a giver of life, who desires and longs to delight to show us how to live, we ask him to make us ones who can live. Purge us, wash us, clean us, heal us, restore us, hide away all that keeps us from life. And as we get closer, we begin not just to pray for the Lord to do what the Lord does, but the Lord to do more than we could expect, to make us more than we were before we entered the tomb, to pray for resurrection, to, to create in us a life that doesn't keep falling back into the same cycles and rhythms, but lives in the wholeness of union and communion when we get to walk with God and see him face to face. To live a life in sync with the Lord and his goodness and his presence and purpose. Eager with a willing spirit. Eager for life that he says we have. It's only here that the psalmist begins to do something. To ask to do something. Nowhere before on this movement out of the grave did the psalmist ask the Lord, what do I need to do to make myself right? What do I need to do to get out of this place? He said, how long, O Lord, do I stay in it? But he didn't say, how do I get out of it? But here, in verse 13, the psalmist begins to ask to do something, or begins to do something. And what does he do? In verse 13, he says, then, having moved towards the edge of this grave, into beginning to see and glimpse life more than the life before. He says, then I'll teach transgressors, transgressors your ways, which is himself, by the way. Like, like he's included in that. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, my delinquent, my delinquent sin, my guilt that's, that's there because of my sin, this lack of deserving life, this everything that I do that leads to death. Deliver me from it. I'm not bound by death anymore. Oh God, oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness, your right way of relating to us, even when we don't relate to you rightly. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. All we do to move out of the grave is worship to live lives of worship that others can see, hear, taste, and know life, his life in us. That's it. That's our movement out of the grave. Not ritualistic things, not, not practices, not even the things that we love to do as a faith family. but worship, a life of worship, a life that declares that you have life, that I have life, and that my life is not my own, but his. So that why? So that others might share in his life. That others might know that their life is his life if they'd only lose what they think is life and cling to him. And then verse 16. Just in case 
we tend to, in that life of worship, move back into our um, ritual ways of relating to God, our ways that we've been, we, we kind of know, um, and are good things, right? Like going to church, praying, reading our Bibles, all those kind of, all these kind of things, trying to make right our sins, to make right our lives, right? To live rightly in the way we think it, just in case that's our default in our worship, in our, in our, our, our loving of what God gives us, life in Jesus. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice. And this is the word for sacrifice there is the idea of the atonement sacrifice. You will not delight in me trying to make right my sin. You won't delight in it. You won't delight in atonement, in atonement sacrifice. Or I would give it to you. If that's what you wanted, the psalmist has discovered. If that's what you actually wanted, I would give that to you. But I've discovered something in the tomb that that's not what you want. You don't want me to pay for my sins. You've paid for them. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. A burnt offering is, the, in, the, in the Jewish sacrificial system, is the offering made for, um, um, for to be able to commune with the Lord. This, this peace offering. It's this idea of, of making the, sure the relationship was on, on a right place so that the, the priest could go into the next level and offer atonement, right? So like, you don't want me to, to, to do the atonement thing. You don't even want me to make the peace offering to try to be the one that restores the relationship. That's not what you're after. You're not after me trying to make things right with you That's not what you're after. What you're after, verse 17, the sacrifices of God, the the things that God desires us to offer him are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, these things you will not despise. Neither the burnt offering nor... The sacrifice of atonement is needed. All that is required is a heart that takes seriously the relationship of God to us. That takes seriously the relationship that we have with God. That feels the weight when that relationship is out of whack. That's what it requires. Us to take seriously, to feel the relationship that we have with him. And when it's out of whack, like our other relationships, our horizontal relationships, that we feel the weight of that. That's what he wants. Us to be so in communion with him, in life with him, to live as if the relationship with him actually mattered and was intimate and deep. That when it's off, it hurts. How incredible is that? That this is what God is after. Such an intimacy with us that when things are off, we feel it. How incredible is our God who wants not our sacrifices of atonement or peace, but simply a heart that longs for restored intimacy with him. Like the father in the prodigal son who wants no no apology from his son only wants him back in. And will do everything, has done everything 
to bring his son back in. So my, my question, I think for us as we end, one of the things I think Lent is meant to help us so that we can live after Lent this way. How, how much of our relating to God is sacrifices and burnt offerings? and not broken and contrite hearts? Just to ask that question. I think the psalmist leads us to ask it in freedom, right? Like, like the, he's gone through death. If we want to live in this life on the outside of it, we've, we've got to kind of ask that question. How much of our sacrifices, how much of our worship is sacrifices and offerings rather than a broken and contrite heart for a God who wants to know us, to show us how to live, to be with us? How much of the things that we do, our Lectio practices, our Bible readings, our times of prayer, the, the little traditions that we have in our home, how much of those are done in order that we might make atonement for our sins or peace with God? And not, not out of just desire to be with him, to commune with him. And so just for a moment, Let's ask that question of ourselves and then respond, respond to his grace and worship and praise.